Hi, I'm Alex Mosed, and you're joining us here on Winner Take All. Thanks for joining. Where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents and try to make some sense of what's going on here. So starting on the, uh, well, not a tech monopoly yet, but an up and coming uh, tech unicorn called Chime. Uh, Chime is one of these challenger banks, you know, online only banks. Um, and uh, well, if you tried to use Chime right now, you would not be able to because Chime is down. Chime is valued at around $5 billion, or I think it's trying to raise money at around a $5 billion valuation. Basically, what happens is these online, you know, digital only banks, branch, branchless banks, um, they don't, they're not building all of this infrastructure in house. So one of Chime's vendors, which enables it to essentially enables Chime gives you a debit card. It lets you send money out of your, you know, digital checking account in the app. And so all of that stuff is broken right now and you're not able to send money out from your bank account. It's kind of a, a big problem for, I think they have over 5 million users. They like five X their number of users in a year. Um, and so this vendor is down or it's not down for everyone, but it's really just down for chime. Um, and so typically what you see happen with, with any of these large uh, tech companies that have these vendor dependencies, they'll actually integrate to multiple vendors and have redundancy so that if one of them goes down, then they can just transfer the load to the other one. So clearly Chime this was completely dependent on this vendor. They're blaming it on Galileo. Um, but, you know, at the same time, like, I guarantee Galileo isn't the only vendor that's doing whatever they're doing. You got to be able to build redundancy uh, into these systems when you're this big and you have millions of people relying on you for making their, uh, you know, phone payments was one of the examples in this article. So um, Chime is down. You know, what, what? why use Chime? It's free. You don't pay any fees for the checking account. You... Um, where is it? No credit check, no hidden bank fees. They will advance you up to two days early your uh, direct deposit salary payment. So I don't know, say you get $1,000 every two weeks. They'll advance that money to you two days early for free. When you think about it, that's kind of an expensive proposition. Um, and then they're saying that, you know, they don't do a credit check on you, so so the underbanked population that might have bad credit can still get a bank account. And they're saying that how do they make money? They're saying that you they give you this debit card, which isn't working right now. And um, when you use that debit card, the fees that Visa collects from the merchant, uh, which I think is around two percent, roughly, give or take, uh, from the merchant, then they have a relationship with Visa and Visa is passing through some of that, uh, you know, that fee essentially as a rebate or a kickback to Chime. And that's how they're making their money. So when you use the debit card and the merchant pays a fee, then Chime is, uh, is making some money. That basically means they're hemorrhaging money right now because you can't, <laughs> you can't acquire customers at the rate that they're acquiring customers. You can't advance them two days on their paycheck uh, and do all these other things just by making like 
I don't know, maybe Visa pays them max 50 basis points, max 50 basis points. Guarantee Visa is not getting them half the fees that Visa is taking. No way. So maybe they're getting 50 basis points. Best case scenario, only on what you spend through the debit card, not through the app. They don't make money on that. So it's literally what you're spending with the debit card, which I don't think is working right now. Um, and maybe they get 50 basis points on that. They don't make any money. They just hemorrhage a lot of money. And I think that's generally the challenge that a lot of these kind of challenger banks have. How do traditional banks make money? Well, they have about 50% in, in fees and then 50% in loans. And so I, it, they, you know, Chime has someone on their team here, general manager of lending. Um, so I, I don't know if they've really rolled that out very much, but you, you got to have the lending revenue and, um, banks are able to diversify lending across a whole portfolio, right? They're lending to consumers, they're lending to businesses. Um, time is just dealing with individuals and it seems like individuals that are, that, you know, it's a motivating factor to be able to get your paycheck two days early. Um, or the fact that they don't do a credit check on you. So that means from a demographic standpoint, Chime's probably core target market isn't the ultra high net worth individual um, that's definitely going to go with a more traditional bank, which means just the market shrinks in terms of how do you extract more money from that population. Um, so basically, the, you know, I think... We've talked a lot about how there's a big platform opportunity with lending marketplaces. Uh, and it's just surprising why you don't see as much platform innovation in the fintech space, especially now with, we've talked about SoFi, we've talked about Wealthfront, we've talked about Chime now. Um, where is the platform innovation? There's no supply side network effect on any of these businesses. These are now massive companies, multi, multi-billion dollar companies. When's it going to happen? You know, I'm kind of been waiting around long enough, right? Like, show me the money. I'm sure that's what the investors are wondering. Show me, how are you actually going to make money on this? Because I guarantee just being a linear lender is also not going to cut it. You just don't have the portfolio to just be writing loans off your own balance sheet. And now there's a lot of competition amongst the digital banks, challenger banks. There's actually now a number of them that are doing very aggressive things like licensing the rights to the LA Rams and Chargers Stadium for $400 million, $500 million so far. They're spending a lot of money. I, I'm just not grasping how the money comes back in and, and no platform dynamic, which means not as defensible. So it's kind of interesting. Let's, uh, let's keep moving here. So uh, Mr. Benioff, Founder, CEO of Salesforce says it's time to break up Facebook. It's addictive. It's not good for you. They're after your kids. They're running political ads that aren't true. And they're also acquiring other companies and commingling data into theirs. Okay, Mark. <laughs> they're acquiring other companies and commingling. They're basically doing MA. And he's saying that they shouldn't be allowed to do M&A, like Salesforce doesn't do M&A all the time and co-mingle data. 
I mean, that's literally what Salesforce does all the time. Okay. Um, so they're running political ads. I, and I think at the point, because they're now doing that, that they probably should be broken up because they're having an undue influence as the largest social media platform on the planet. Still don't get it. Um, yeah, I think, I think Mark's just trying to make noise because he's marketing this book that he's launching. And I think Mark is grumpy politically. And he talks a lot about politics and tying that to why Facebook should be broken up. And I think this comes back to what we've talked a lot about on the show, which is that Zuckerberg has actually said he wants to be regulated. He doesn't want to decide um, what, what content we should be taking down because it's abusive or inappropriate versus where's the violation of free speech. And he's actually asked the FTC and the government to actually help paint those lines for Facebook and others like Facebook. Again, but breaking the companies up isn't going to solve it. I mean, Instagram is massive in its own right. Facebook is massive in its own right. Um, what, and Facebook has come out and said this, look, if you break us up, you're actually going to have to go build all the infrastructure and all the tools to now monitor what's going on in each one of these platforms all over again. And guess what? The tools aren't going to be as good. And the ability to monitor and, and, and kind of clean up the content isn't going to be as robust if you now uh, break this up. So there's still dominant platforms in their own right. You know, you're not going to unseat the billion plus users on Facebook or the hundreds of millions of users on Instagram just by breaking the two things up. If you actually think about it, the integration of Facebook and Instagram, I mean, I, there was definitely some impact, but I don't think that um, Facebook, and, Facebook and Instagram are, are really super tied into one another in the first place, or even for that matter, WhatsApp. So they're actually somewhat independent properties. So I don't see, I mean, yes, they're, I guess they're sharing the data and, and the users and they're trying to spread the users out across, across to the other platforms, but it's not actually that deep of an integration um, as you would think it is as to why there's such outcry from Mr. Benioff here as to why these things are so horrible to be broken up. I think he's really grumpy about the election. Okay, fine. This doesn't solve that. And, the f and whether or not you like the political ads that are running and you're saying that Facebook should now be monitoring what the political ads are, this is a government thing. So, and again, breaking them up doesn't solve it. You need the government to provide regulation about how the platform monitors or silences or vets the content coming from its suppliers. Whether those suppliers are independent content creators or those suppliers are advertisers. That guidance has not come. Facebook's asking for the guidance. It's not being given. Oh, what? oh let's break them up. Like, that's going to solve it. I don't get it. I don't think... I think Mark is just very emotionally driven on this right now. So, um, the other thing that he critiques is this law. Uh, uh, Section 230. And it says it should be abolished. And now there's this other article. Uh, lawmakers hit the Trump administration for including tech legal shield in trade negotiations. Okay, this is really interesting. Bipartisan lawmakers have now critiqued them for doing this. The Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which gives 
Platforms' legal immunity for content posted by third-party users while also giving them legal cover to take good-faith efforts to moderate their platforms have been included in some way in both the USMCA trade agreement and the pact with Japan signed earlier this month. They don't want this language in there. Okay, what this language is saying, hey, Mexico, Canada, Japan, you don't have a law like Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which provides this immunity for a platform to get content from third-party content creators, right? Which, if you remember that law, I think from 1996, the like DMCA, Digital Millennium Copyright Act, says... You can be a content platform, basically, and you are not liable if, say, copyright, uh, infringing copyright content is posted onto your platform. So um, if you're on YouTube and a video uh, that infringes on someone's copyright is posted onto YouTube, Google cannot be held liable for that content being posted because Google didn't actually infringe the copyright. A third-party content creator did. Now, if the infringed copyright a victim contacts YouTube and says, hey, you have infringing content on your site, take it down, then YouTube needs to comply with that and respond in a timely manner. If they don't do that, then they can get in trouble. Okay. Uh, So that's what the DMCA set up was that immunity. What Section 230 is saying is these platforms can now also take good faith efforts to moderate their platforms and remove abusive or hateful content, right? And ban users or take down content. There was a delineation that says you either need to, if you are moderating the content on the platform, then you are considered a publisher, which means you're now liable for content uh, copyright infringement. This is saying, hey, the content's coming from third parties, but you still need to have some level of moderation. Otherwise, it's the wild, wild west. In our book, we talk about a video streaming platform from many, many, many years ago, uh, which I won't get into in terms of what happened there. Completely unregulated uh, live streaming platform that connects random people over video to each other. And if you were using the platform, I guess, 10 years ago, you probably are familiar with what would happen every other video stream that would pop up on your screen. Not enjoyable. Um, Maybe to some people, but not to me at least. Section 230 provides immunity for them to basically have both of these activities. Okay. Politicians, both Republicans and Democrats, don't want this included in trade agreements. It makes no sense to me. Why would you want to inhibit the ability of a tech, U.S. tech platform company from being able to operate with this level of immunity abroad. I don't get it. I just don't get it. Aren't these U.S. congressmen and women that are supposed to be supporting U.S. companies and U.S. influence abroad? I mean, China gets it. China gets it in spades. China is extremely smart, especially at the government level, with the power that comes with tech platform monopolies. We've spoken at this extensively, especially in the past few weeks. China absolutely understands. China has three basic mechanisms of strength. Economically, militarily, and the third one's technology. And the big chunk of that technology branch is tech platforms. The other one would be like Huawei, for example, um, which is linear kind of infrastructure tech. 
But absolutely, that third bucket, the majority of the power is tech platforms and tech platforms influence abroad. Okay. Like what we've talked about with Tencent. So why, as a U.S. congressperson, would you try to actively hurt the ability for our U.S. tech platform companies to operate under this, under this model abroad? It just makes zero sense. It, it just doesn't make any sense at all. So, I don't know. These lawmakers... They don't understand the internet, let alone platform businesses. It really is just, every time we run into this, it's just right over their head. Or, or, or they're just bought off. I don't know what it, I don't want to say that they are this inept, right? I don't want to say that they aren't sharp. They have to be sharp to be in the position that they're in. It just seems that they have some serious conflicts of interest here. And they're not acting in the best interest of the United States of America. I just don't know how you argue um, any other way around this. It just doesn't make it makes this isn't a political thing. And this is a bipartisan reaction. It zero sense. Zero sense. Okay. On to Netflix. So Netflix is way up. Was I wrong about Netflix? Oh, you know, hey, Alex, Netflix is up. Um, They beat on earnings. Netflix is still screwed long-term. Absolutely. Not screwed, but they're just not going to be what they were. As we've said, the only chance that Netflix has to continue to sustain itself or justify its valuation is on the heels of international growth. Absolutely. Um, We've made that point very clear. And that's actually exactly what you see here happening. So, their domestic paid subscriber editions, they missed. They got 500,000. They were supposed to get 800,000. It's a decent sized miss. Their business in the United States is fundamentally challenged. The growth that they're going to see in the US will never be what it used to be. And it's going to be very expensive to hold on to these customers as more. Uh, you know, pure play digital content players get into the game. Disney Plus is about to come out and um, it's going to get very expensive. So the U.S. business is very challenged. And by the way, that's the core of their business. Don't be fooled by the pure volume of the international paid subscriptions, right? So they beat, they beat by 200,000 um, from the international subscription, 6.25, 6.26 versus 6.05 million. Uh, so they beat by 200,000, but they missed in the US by 300,000. Net net, they still missed on subscriber additions. But the, the market, the street's happy because they beat on earnings and there's strong international growth. Here's the problem with international growth. They don't pay you any money. The amount of money that US consumers will spend on media Versus the amount of money that consumers in India will spend on media, it's like 10 to 1. There's literally no comparison. Nowhere else in the world do people pay as much for consuming content um, as we do in the United States. So Netflix has to expand internationally, but 
the uh, the income coming from that is much lower. The revenue coming from that is much lower. And you have to create a lot of custom content abroad internationally to cater to these different uh, countries and cultures and and uh, regions that are out there. So it's also not cheap. You can't you can't just use the same content and scale it internationally and voila, you know, you get 6 million new users. No, it, it doesn't work like that. Again, I, I'm not predicting when is Netflix going to crash, which quarter is it here or there, but I'm saying over the long term, Netflix is still in trouble, folks. Nothing materially has changed. If anything, these numbers actually support exactly uh, the future outlook as, as we see it because they don't have any supply side network effects. All of their content is created or licensed by Netflix. It's on their balance sheet. They are not a platform business. Um, They have a lot of demand and they can use that demand strategically, but there's no supply side moat. Uh, There's nothing to prevent other international players to go after their international markets with a similar Netflix model, but internationally, nothing to prevent that from happening. It just hasn't been, I think, you know, in U.S., we're a little bit farther along there, but Amazon's also in India. So, um, yeah, you know, I wouldn't say there's really anything too material here that really strikes me any differently with, uh, with this. And they talk about Stranger Things, and it's a very hit-driven business. So they say, yeah, look, third quarter, we, l- we launched Stranger Things. And guess what? That coincides with us adding more subscribers. It's a hit-driven business. That's a big problem for them. More to come on that. We'll certainly be continuing to follow it. Um, let's look at some linear players making some platform plays. Uh, so the four telecom companies, AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, and Sprint, have made a, a collective effort called ZenKey for authentication. If anyone has an iPhone, and you use the, you know, the password that scans your face and logs you into all your apps. That's what this is. Um, it's a JV around basically like a, think of it as like a development platform-esque thing um, that will let you have like single sign-on login. You know, Facebook has done this where you can log into a bunch of apps via your Facebook account. Same kind of idea. A very lightweight development platform model. All of the um, big telecom companies have now teamed up to try and get into the game. I don't think that this really presents a huge kind of monetization scheme. These aren't like game-changing platform initiatives. These are kind of like low-hanging fruit. Hey, let's team up on this. Um, If we pool our collective resources, maybe this will just kind of give us a little bit of a stickier value prop. Um, against the platform companies like iOS and Android that are solving for this on their own, um, or Facebook, for example. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. They're kind of late to the game on this. If it does work, it's not materially changing any of their earnings or outlook or anything like that. Um, I uh, will be curious to see if they can actually execute on this properly, but uh, we'll see. More information as we. Try to understand how is this business capitalized and, you know, how is this business going to continue to be independent and execute successfully? And um, we've kind of seen this model before. Where have we seen this model? With a company called Zelle. 
it's actually very similar. You kind of had these like independent kind of like technology um, providers to the industry. So that the business that owns Zelle, similar to this company that um, owns Zenki, looks like it's called um, Live X Live. They have a technology. It's a linear model. Um, you know, they're kind of like technology providers to the big players. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe the big players are like white labeling their thing or something like this. And, and now it looks like when the, um, when the major players in the space, whether it's the telecom companies, uh, for Zenkey or it's the banks for Zelle, they all come together. They say, oh, there's, here's this company. They've been working with us. They have the tech to do this. Now let's basically all chip in, own this business equally. And um, we will now enable this technology company, uh, a linear SaaS company, probably, to actually become a platform company. And we're going to give them access to our collective customer base. So before it, it was linear. And now that the banks now all chip in, they own it in a JV. Now all the banks will say, okay, sure. You can get access to our customers. Uh, we all own a piece of this. We're all in this together. Um, if we don't do this, a fintech is going to do this or a large tech platform is going to do this. Who else competes with Zelle? Oh, a company called PayPal and Venmo and um, now all these challenger banks and you know all these other um, fintech startups that we've been talking about. So <clears throat> basically... The payments business for us, this this peer-to-peer uh, -peer payments business is going to get commoditized anyway. They used to be able to make money on it. Well, we're not going to be able to make money on this anymore. That revenue is gone. I might as well still own it and keep it within my, my industry. Let's go partner up with all my competitors. Let's do a JV. And boom, you get Zelle. Zelle has been very successful. They just passed a new threshold, uh, which is what this announcement is is for. And um, in 2019, they topped its total use in fewer than nine months as the bank handled more than 160 million transactions through the end of August and could break 200 million transactions uh, for the year of 2019. By transactions, that's me sending uh, Kirk, our uh, producer on Winner Take All, five bucks. That's a transaction. And now it looks like more than 200 banks are part of the Zelle system. So Zelle started with 20 or 30 banks that seeded this. I don't, I'm not privy to the cap table. But I don't think that they've let in all 200 banks in on the cap table. So from an enterprise value, there is some mild accretiveness, right? I mean, there's definitely some valuation increase now. What would Zelle actually be worth um, given that they have such huge adoption across now 200 banks? That's definitely adding enterprise value to this investment um, amongst the original 20 or 30 banks that seeded it. So that's a win, right? I mean, they're creating value. Um, it's not going to be a tech monopoly in its own right, but it provides an interesting launch point. Um, Zelle much more so than, than Zenkey, but it provides an interesting launch point for new disruptive business models to be introduced to the industry. Now, Problem is 20 or 30 banks and the board structure and how do you really launch a new business or say, uh, how do you kind of do become a platform conglomerate, right? That would kind of be the natural progression of something like Zelle. Hey, you hit 200 million users. Um, 
let's start doing some lending or let's do a lending marketplace, right? You know, something like that, um, which can now actually let you make some more money um, and really capture some much stickier network effects, which payments is nice, but you're not, you're not killing it just off of peer-to-peer payments. They can make a little bit of money that way, but um, from a monetization standpoint, purely on the payment platform side, it's just not there. <clears throat> so how do you use this as a foundation to launch into other platform models? That's where my mind would naturally go. And um, it'll be interesting to see how the banks, if the banks agree to do something like that or not. Doesn't And, and so Early Warning Services is the company that now kind of oversees Zelle. That was this linear SaaS provider that was working, had this technology for years, had been working with the banks, and now then the banks teamed up and gave them access to their customers. So um, what is the next bounce of the ball? You got to keep moving because if you just stay stagnant, then you can bet that the other private tech monopolies like PayPal are only going to continue to compound upon the network effects, are only going to continue to just add a stickier equation um, into the, the Venmo, PayPal, um, platform conglomerate arena, which will just continue to differentiate away from something like Azelle. So it's a great story about using the linear scale to jumpstart a platform initiative, which I'd say is a win right now. Now, the question is, how do you turn it into a monopoly? And we'll see on that. So uh, thanks for joining us today on Winner Take All. We'll talk to you tomorrow.